You join me as we pray together. Lord Jesus, you've given us eyes to be able to see the beauty of the world. You've given us ears to hear its music. You've given us the capacity to taste its pleasures. And so you now have to give us eyes to see your glory. You have to give us ears to hear your living word. You have to create appetites and tastes within us for heavenly realities, Father. Only then will we have our right relationship with this visible reality. So again we come to you this morning and pray that this untamable, uncontainable God would range as freely and as deeply as we need you to do that today. Lion of Judah, we pray that you will be among your people in your power and in your wisdom and above all in your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us at various times have either read in a book or heard in a sermon or come across a web article that, that, that talks about how at least in North America, for all practical purposes, the operational values and behaviors of evangelicals are not at all different from that of the world around us. And they usually come up with some good evidence to back that up too. But as I was thinking about it this morning, there's also a very significant difference. When the people of the world behave the way they do, especially in what we call the moral realm, as far as I know, they do not feel any guilt or shame. They are living completely consistent with their own value systems. They don't lose any sleep over the way in which they are living. And David has mentioned some of those. But most Christians that I know, and the one that I know best, which is myself, when, even when our behaviors and our values are like that, there is a huge part of us that wished it could be different. We truly want to be holy and loving and kind and just. And so when we sin, we then experience guilt and shame. We're living inconsistent with our own convictions. And so we resolve to do better the next time. And we succeed for a little while. And we fall again. And eventually, some of us, all of the time, all of us, some of the time, fall into this cycle of uh, sin, shame and guilt, forgiveness, resolution, success for a while, and then the cycle once again. The book of Judges is a whole book that describes that cycle for 400 years in the life of God's people. I don't know where each one of you is in that scheme of things. But I want to speak this morning to those of you who for whatever reason have got to the point where you're living in resignation. You said, this is the best that Christianity has to offer. And I'm just suck it up and live like that. And, for, and I want to speak to you this morning. And, and for others, if you are not there, don't tune me out. Because if you're not there, you might get there someday. And you will all certainly know somebody that's in that situation. You will need this to help them. But the word this morning is not a word of condemnation. Nor even is it a word of exhortation to do better. It is an undiluted word of encouragement. And so as Isaiah encourages Judah in exile, I want you to connect your story wherever you are in a battle with sin, with his story, and be encouraged this morning. There isn't a shadow of a doubt in my mind what God wants to communicate to you today. He has confirmed it in so many ways, it will take a whole sermon in itself. So will you receive in faith? Because I am preaching in faith this morning. So he begins in Isaiah chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom you have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent to you. And you might say, I thought you said it was a word of encouragement. 
Well, listen, remind, let me remind you again. There are two questions that Judah is facing in exile. The first question is, is God powerful enough to deal with the Babylonians? The second, much more important question which we are dealing with in this section is, is God able to deal with sin in my life? And this, their prolonged rebellion against the preaching of Isaiah that led to the exile and has resulted in their present situation has raised the dreaded possibility that somehow, somewhere they have crossed the point of no return. And that God has somehow abandoned them as far as his covenant commitments are concerned. That is the concern that is being addressed in this question. And to understand this, you need to go back to an obscure piece of legislation in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I won't take time to go through the detail, but it runs something like this. If a man divorces his wife for, because he has found some indecency in her, and that word is notorious to define what it means and in practical terms was used as an excuse. He had to give his wife a certificate of divorce, which was really for her protection in that community. And if that woman was married again, and that second husband treated her the same way, or he died, God said, it is impossible for you to return to your first husband. That is an abomination. You see, very loosely, that legislation is in the back of Judah's mind in exile and said, are we metaphorically speaking in that situation? Because God as husband and Judah as wife is a metaphor that runs throughout the scriptures. So their question is, have we been divorced in a sense that is impossible to be remarried again to our husband? That's the question. The second question goes through another practical legislation. That is, if an Israelite got poor enough, uh, was poor because of indebtedness and couldn't pay his debts, he could sell his son or his daughter as a slave to the other person. Those are the two questions. Ownership has been transferred. And God addresses both of those concerns with this amazing question. He said, oh, where's the certificate of divorce? You don't have one. That's because I didn't give you one. I've never sent you away. You're still my wife. I've never abandoned you. I have not broken the covenant. And as for creditors, can you tell me somebody to whom I owe anything? I don't have any creditors. You see how beautiful this assurance is? What seems like an obscure little question? That's what he's saying. The covenant has never been broken. God's covenant with his people has never been broken. I am still your husband. And God's relationship will never be dissolved. I am still your father. There are all kinds of reasons why in our life we can reach stages when we feel either abandoned by God or consigned to a time of difficulty. But these opening words from Isaiah 50 are an encouragement to us in those times when we are entrapped and overwhelmed by the power of sin in our lives to the point where we begin to wonder, has God, have we crossed the point of no return? Has God abandoned us? And in, to you in that situation, God says, no, the covenant is never broken. My relationship is never sabotaged. Now remember, these are not a license for sin. When my brother-in-law and, his, and, his, and my two brothers-in-law first came to North America to, to uh, immigrate with their family, uh, Ravi told me once about a conversation he had in a young adult group in the church he was in with a young man who had adopted an openly uh, dishonorable lifestyle, claiming to be a Christian. And when Ravi confronted him, he said, Oh, but I believe in eternal security. That's not what these verses are for. No, 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 these are words that are given to a man or a woman of God who truly wants to be holy but is entrapped by sin and is caught in that helplessness, whatever that sin is. To that person, to that man, to that woman, to that child, he says, I am your father, you are my child, I'm your husband, you're my wife, the covenant isn't broken. I have not abandoned my relationship with you. We could go home now, couldn't we? <laughs> That's the assurance he gives to us.
So what is to be our response if God assures us in this way? Verses 2 and 3. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God says, I come to you. I come to you in your darkness. I come to you in your exile. Where are you? (laughs) I'm calling you. Why aren't you responding? And the the issue here is not their sinful indifference. That was what characterized the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Remember when they said, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Preach to us pleasant illusions and dreams. That's not the problem here. The, The problem here is not indifference to a God who comes. The problem is loss of faith that it matters. If, if this is the extent to which I am bogged down in this besetting sin in my life, and there's no victory, there's no power, what's the point going back to God? What's the point worshipping? What's the point praying? What's the point reading God's word? I mean, there's no power. That's the issue. It's not indifference. And they needed, they needed a fresh boost to their faith that God is able and powerful. That He still wants His people and He still wants to, is able to deal with His power. And that's why God gives them this uh, demonstration of His power over creation. He says, you're part of that creation. I have power. (laughs) Listen, the practical implication of this is huge. So I've actually spelled it out for you in your notes, and I'll read it twice. We deal with sin neither by pretending it isn't there, nor by helpless surrender to its power, but by repeatedly taking it to the hand that can redeem from sin by the word that can rebuke sin. Let me say figure. So the encouragement is continuing. I promised you every step of this message is encouragement to you. We deal with sin neither by pretending it isn't there nor by helpless surrender to its power but by repeatedly taking it to the hand that can redeem from sin by the word that can rebuke sin in our life. That's what God is saying. My hand is not work short and I can rebuke anything that I create including the sin in your life. Now how is God going to accomplish this? He's going to do this. How is he going to accomplish How is he going to do this work of rebuking sin so thoroughly that it's going to break its power in the lives of his people? And the answer to that is the servant of the Lord. Remember in these passages we are dealing with that question. How can God be holy and still deal with his people's sin? And the answer is this unique Israelite known as the servant of the Lord. We've looked at it in chapter 42. We've spent a lot of time in chapter 49. This is the third servant of the Lord's son. The first, in the first three verses, God is speaking to Isaiah uh, through Isaiah to Judah, in verse 4 onwards, the servant of the Lord is speaking. It's an autobiographical text that gives us insight into the servant of the Lord. And the first thing we learn about the servant is, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. I want you to focus, first of all, on the phrase in yellow. The tongue of those who are taught. That phrase, those who are taught, is a translation of a single word in the Hebrew language called limud. I almost t- titled this sermon, Becoming Limuds. <laughs> a, a limud is a disciple who by a prolonged exposure to instruction and training has so internalized the truths of what they have been taught that they are now able to verbalize that to other people in such a way that it's effective to them. That's a mouthful, right? One word in Hebrew, limud. <laughs> and so the first thing we are told about the servant of the Lord is that This servant has been so well instructed and trained by God 
that the truth has been so wonderfully internalized in his life that he is now able to speak a word that sustains the weary. And in the context of Isaiah 49, and this was precious insight to me, I don't know how many times I've read this text, but I never saw this before. In the context of where Isaiah 50 appears, it is a word to the people who have become wearied by sin in their life. Because that's, that's the problem he's addressing. So to those who become weary in the battle against sin, he says, I am able to speak a word that sustains you in the middle of that battle. (laughs) So that's the first thing we are told about the servant. He has been given the tongue of a disciple who can then sustain others with the weary word. Next question. How did the servant learn this? (laughs) Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. It's a picture. It's a metaphor of awakened from sleep, but it's very effective. Just imagine you're fast asleep. Someone comes and shakes you and says, time to get up, time to get up. That's the first awakening. That once they are awake and you're sitting up, they look at you and say, now can you listen to me? Are you hearing me? Pay attention. That's the second awakening. The first one is to get you out of bed. The second one is to open your ears so you're listening. That's the picture here. And the servant of the Lord, it says, this is how I got the tongue of someone who can speak a word that sustains the word. This is how I became a limud. By allowing myself to be awakened first, morning by morning, and secondly, to have my ear awakened so I can be instructed and taught systematically. That's how the servant of the Lord got that that tongue. By submitting to this daily discipline of these two awakenings. You remember we learned in Isaiah 49, he had a mouth of a sharpened sword and he was like a polished arrow. That didn't happen overnight. It was the product of a long submission to this process. Until the year filled with the word of God became a tongue filled with the word of sustaining weary people. Get that? A long period of submission to this process of awakening morning by morning until a year filled with the word of God becomes a tongue that is able to is filled with a word that sustains weary people. And, and he says, I was a willing participant. I, I turned not backward. Go back to our little image. Imagine, some, imagine someone waking you up in the morning on the alarm clock and you go this way. You're turning your back to the person who's awakening you. That's what Jesus is saying I didn't do. The servant of the Lord says, when I was awakened, instead of turning away, I turned towards. I voluntarily submitted to this process of being awakened and then having my ear awakened so I could be instructed, so I could then speak a word that sustains the weary. Now there was another purpose for his listening because not only does he get a word that will sustain the weary, he learns it by being sustained in his own weariness. Because we don't have somebody who just knows it in his head. We have one. That's why Hebrews says, you have not resisted unto sin. And so we hear these words. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. And therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? You see, this, this process of submitting morning by morning to, to be instructed involved a response of obedience that led to torture, that led to flogging, and that led to disgrace. And in that process, he was sustained by this God. This limud was sustained by words that would enable him. Because he says, my God helps me, my God vindicates me, therefore I set my face like a flint. 
Now the awakening process is complete. Now he's moving. Awaked, alive, submitting to flogging, torture. All because the sustaining word assures him of the near presence of God, the certainty of vindication, and the strength to be resolved. What an amazing picture. So, now we have the answer, complete answer of God to the question that was troubling Jude. Have I in my sin, have we in our sin crossed the point of no return? God says, no. Divorce you? Never. Where's the bill of certificate of divorce? Terminate my relationship with you by selling you into slavery? Never. I'm still your father. Yes, you are in exile because of your sin. But I've never broken my covenant with you and this is why. Through this unique servant of the Lord, I will deal with the fact of sin and the power of sin in your life. You see, it's an amazing contrast between verse 2, when he said, I came and who, where were you? I came and I called, you didn't pay attention. So Judah was the people that never paid attention in contrast to the servant of the Lord who did exactly the opposite. And one man summed it up so beautifully, here it is for you. Judah does not heed God's call, the servant always listens. Judah is unconvinced about the Lord's love and power, but the servant is confident in the Lord's help and nearness. Judah suffers for her iniquity and rebellion, but the servant suffers because of obedience. Zion is charged with offenses, but the servant knows no charge against him that can be sustained in the court of law. And we know his name is Jesus. So before we get to 2012 AD, can we make a stop in 30 AD and see the exquisite fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50 in the life of Jesus? If you read the Gospels, you will find over and over again phrases like this. The people were amazed at his words. The people were astonished at his words. We know now why. He had a word that sustains the weary. You will also read over and over again that while the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious experts tried, resisted him, the common people heard him gladly. Who were the common people? They were a burdened people. First of all, there was a terrible burden of Rome. Harsh taxation, difficult life. In addition, there was a religious burden. The Pharisees who had changed the law of God to about 5,000 do's and don'ts. There were 600 and something just on the Sabbath, for example. Religion had become a burden. It was an unbearable yoke. So Rome was an unbearable yoke. Their own faith had become an unbearable yoke to them. And internally there were sinful people like you and me. They had the same problem. They were a weary people. Isn't it amazing that a weary people heard the Holy One of Israel and said they heard Him gladly? Why? Because He spoke a word that sustained weary people. He spoke a word that was irresistible to weary people. (laughs) Right away they knew this isn't religion. (laughs) This is something different. That's why he said, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yokes that gave rest, nobody knew what that was. That was a contradiction in terms until Jesus came. And then, do you remember, you will read also them wondering, where did this son of a carpenter learn to speak like this? (laughs) Hey, we know the answer to that. Because he was awakened morning by morning. And so come with me to Hebrews chapter 10, which is the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah chapter 50. Completely different words, but exactly the same thing. So I'm going to read that for you. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now you may say, how is this connected to Isaiah chapter 50, which talks all about years? Well, actually, these verses are a quotation from Psalm 40, from a slightly different translation. One is from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The other one is from the Masoretic text, which is a Hebrew. And there's a very interesting shift in the words. Psalm 40 reads this way. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Same words. But you have given me an open ear. <laughs> Hebrew says you have prepared my body for me. These two verses put together, they tell you the body was prepared by awakening the ear. So the body can then do what the ear tells it to do. That's the point of the connection. <laughs> Jesus' mind was completely saturated with the scriptures, especially the Psalms. And the Psalms say, I delight to do your will, O God. And so those are all picked up in Hebrews. Now can I paraphrase this for you? Twice we have a phrase repeated, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. When Jesus came into this world and related in intimacy with the Father and submitted to the process, he said basically, you didn't want me to have my daily devotions. That's what he was saying. God isn't interested in daily devotions that you just tick off every day. Sacrifices and burnt offerings, that's not what it's all about. What is it about? A body you have prepared for me, years you have dug out for me, therefore I'm coming. It's all about Isaiah 50. That's what it's all about, being awakened morning by morning. Having our years awakened to listen. And he came to, with the scroll, the word of God. He didn't have a Bible or an electronic version that we have in our hand. Probably was well schooled in here in 30 years. Of rabbinic instruction in the synagogues. And so he comes to God. The picture is of, of, of Jesus coming every day to God. Convinced that scripture is a divine script for him. And in that script God speaks to him every day. He awakens him. He speaks to him from the word of God. And then as a result of what he hears he goes out and does it. And if you look at that will of the father. There are three dimensions to that will that we see. First of all he said. And I like the way Jesus didn't have his daily devotion. Get rid of that. Get rid of that terminology. I think Churchill was absolutely right. We shape our words and our words end up shaping us. Maybe he said that about buildings. But it's equally true about words too. Daily devotions has done more to rob us of our joy in communing with God than anything else I know. Because it's all about doing things. This is Pharisaic to the heart. There's no joy. It's an unbearable yoke. But not listening to him every day through the word of God. That's completely different. First of all, he listens for a word that sustains the weary. This is the answer to the question, where did the son of a carpenter learn to speak like this? <laughs> Secondly, he also listened for daily direction for demanding ministry. In the Gospel of Mark, after a very busy opening day, chapter 1, Mark gets right into it. No, no nativity stories, nothing. He gets right into action, 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 action in Mark's Gospel. And a busy day of casting out demons, healing sick people, teaching in the synagogues. Jesus and his disciples go to bed at night. And the disciples are up in the morning saying, oh, lots more, lots more people to heal. Wow, another wonderful day of miracles. Front row, center seats for us. And they don't find Jesus anywhere. Because he was got up early in the morning, long before sunrise. And he was out seeking the Father's will. And he said, okay, we're not healing anymore. We're going. We're going to pray some prayer. That's what the Master told me to do. You see, he kept marching the orders. Daily direction for ministry came from there. And then thirdly, of course, the assurance of God's present help, courage for the cross and promise of vindication. You remember Isaiah 50, the servant set his face like a flint. What did Jesus do? He set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Knowing what awaited him there. Because he was sustained every day. My father is with me. 
my father is going to vindicate me and my father is giving me courage to go. And so can I summarize the gospel for us in this context? Jesus' entire life of obedience leading all the way to the cross is not only the provision for forgiveness from the penalty of sin, but God's way of breaking the power of sin so that we are not caught in an endless cycle of sin, repentance, forgiveness, a period of victory until we sin again, but progressive freedom. Because He knows a word that sustains the weary. He receives the word that speaks the word of rebuke to the sin in our life. Let me read it for you again. Jesus' entire life of obedience leading all the way to the cross is not not only the provision for forgiveness from the penalty of sin, but God's way of breaking the power of sin so that we are not caught in an endless cycle of sin, repentance, forgiveness, a period of victory until we sin again, but progressive freedom. And if I can give it to you in a couple of pictures, it's not this. It's not just up and down, up and down, up and down, making no change in your life. There are ups and downs, but it's an eventually upward climb. There'll be falls. You pick yourself up again. But you don't fall to the bottom of the mountain every time. You just slip wherever you're flying, pick yourself up and keep climbing. That's irreversible, progressive, permanent transformation because of the power of Jesus' words. He is able to rebuke sin in your life and in my life as we submit to this process. So, how do we get to it? How do we experience this? How do we hear the word of encouragement? The word that sustains the weary. When we are in the middle of that cycle of sin and have resigned ourselves to a powerless, unsatisfying life, we respond like Jesus did. Don't be like Judah. God comes to them in this darkness and their sin. He says, where are you? No, but the servant responded. We submit to the same process. To allow ourselves to be awakened morning by morning. To be jerked out of that slumber. And not turn our backs, but to turn our faces to Him. And then with the open scroll in our hands to say, You didn't want devotions, God. That's not what it's all about. You have a living word for me from this book, which is a script for my life. If I'm standing here before you as an eloquent testimony to the truth of what I'm preaching. If you were to ask me, Sundar, could you isolate one thing in your life that more than anything else has been responsible to get you where you are today? I would have absolutely no hesitation in saying it is this. Morning by morning, being awakened to listen like one being taught. For when I was in the grip of a sin whose power that I couldn't break and knew the anguish of this cycle, all the while longing to be holy and pure and free, this is what happened to me. He never let me go. (laughs) I got a word over and over and over again that sustains the weary. And then it also began to become a word that broke the power of that sin in my life. So never quit the fight. No matter how powerful the sin's hold may be in your life, never quit the fight. You're not presuming upon God's grace as an excuse for sinning, but you submit to that gracious process by which He awakens us morning by morning to listen. First for a word that sustains the weary. And then the word that breaks the power of sin in your life. Then you will hear, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The truth will set you free. Now, I don't want to be reductionistic here. Don't get me wrong. 
I'm not giving you a magic formula for dealing with sin. I understand that there are situations where we need professional counseling because of emotional issues that anchor that sin in our life. We definitely need the help of community. Some of us may need healing prayers for traumas in our life. I'm not reductionistic at all. I understand that. But I will tell you this much without any hesitation. When all of those things have been done and you're free, you've got to come back to this. Without this, all of that will amount to nothing. All that healing is for this. This is the word that sustains you. This is the word that breaks the power of sin. This is the word that gives you an upward life rather than this bouncy life going nowhere. Of that, I am absolutely convinced. Now it gets even better. Not only do you hear a word that sustains you, you get the tongue of a limud. You become a limud yourself. Your tongue gets, your my ears get so filled with the word of God that the word that sustains you now becomes a word through you to sustain other people. We, we, we have a fancy name for it. We call it ministry. <laughs> Preaching, yeah. Teaching in a Sunday school, yes. Quietly discipling somebody, having a Bethmore Bible study. Doesn't matter what context it is. All over the phone praying with somebody. That's all a word that sustains the weary. You've got it, you can now give it. You're becoming a limud. It has nothing to do with perfection, folks. You don't wait until you get perfect and solve this problem of sin. Because nobody will ever do any ministry then. It is not perfection but direction. That's all that matters. And as we are beginning to move ourselves, this is a process. We give out what's coming in. I still need a word that sustains me in my sin. I'm not locked, locked in any cycle right now, although I must say that whatever point at which I'm trying to grow, I'm struggling. I mean, here too, when I look at my own life, I remember when we first came 32 years ago to preach almost 30 years, Sham was saying, I wonder, will we last a month? Really? And I, and I, and I lived, not in constant tension, but I lived in regular anguish, what if I get up some Sunday morning and I have nothing to say to the people? Whatever else my faults are, getting up and talking about things I don't feel about isn't one of mine. Now I don't worry about them anymore. I don't have enough of a lifetime to go through everything that God will speak to me through that word. My anxiety is all about making sure I listen. We will never run out of things to say. Because he's always pouring it into us. If we submit to the training program of the Limud... Wakened morning by morning, not turning our backs, but turning our faces to him. So we can be awake. Because you see, ultimately, remember, ministry itself contributes to breaking the power of sin in your life. <laughs> I have to say this. God's amazing work in my life of progressive holiness has come, not because I became good enough to do ministry. He gave me ministry so I could become good enough. Because in the doing of the ministry, you experience realities that you don't otherwise. So don't let the enemy disqualify you, right? Ramona talked last week about Rupin saying, don't let the accuser take you of your, take you, rob you of your assurance of salvation. I'm telling you, don't let the accuser's voice rob you of fruitful ministry. You're qualified because you're submitting to the training program of a limo. That's the only thing that's required. Now, so far, everything has been encouragement. The last two words are a mild exhortation. But even there, it's for encouragement. Verses 10 and 11. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. 
You see, Judah in the darkness of exile had two options before them. Option number one, in the midst of their darkness, got there by their own sinful rebellion against the Holy One of Israel. Option number one was to believe the word of the prophet Isaiah, that I have not broken my covenant with you, I have not abandoned you, there is coming the servant of the Lord through whom I will break the power of sin in your life. Option number one was to believe and continue to live the way they were instructed. Jeremiah would later write after Isaiah to a people in exile, settle down, build houses, get married, have children, pray for the peace of your governor and live out my life. That's what they were called to do in exile. Or option number two, it doesn't work. Either he isn't interested or he doesn't have the power in this area. We better find our own ways. <laughs> God says, you find your own ways to light the darkness, what you're going to get is torment, not freedom. This is exactly what happened when Jesus came. When the servant of the Lord came, this is exactly what happened. Judah was in exile at that time. Oh, they were back in Palestine, but they were still under the power of Rome. For 500 years, they had not been free. After Babylon, it was Medo-Persia. After Persia, it was Greece. After Greece, it was now Rome. They were still, they were in the land, but they were basically still not a free people. So that wasn't the end of exile for them. And of, you have to understand, in, in, in the thinking of the first century Judaism, because sin got them into exile, forgiveness must mean the end of exile. The idea that there was forgiveness without the end of exile was an incomprehensible team. So now Jesus shows up and he's talking about forgiveness of sin, but they're still in exile. They can't, that doesn't compute. So now you have two options, right? Option number one, just like in Isaiah's time. Option number one is to believe that the servant of the Lord has come and exile and freedom from exile is being redefined in Jesus. That the end of exile is not getting out of the land or changing my human conquerors. The end of exile is because Jesus has shown up. That in him exile is over. And in him I have forgiveness of sin. That's the way of faith. The way of lighting your own fires, which is what the Pharisees and many others took, is no, we don't want that. We have our own ways. And our own ways is rebellion against Rome. Our own ways is political messiahs. Our own way is literal freedom. And they did it. And in 70 AD, this prophecy came through. They did lie down in torment. The temple was finished. Judaism in that part of the world, that kind of second temple, Judaism was finished. After that, they lived the people in dispersion. And so that's where we are today. Today, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually and together, we are the temple. And that temple is called to be holy. But today the word is not an exhortation to be holy. It is an encouragement. Because he's going to make us holy. And when in the darkness of our sin, sometimes there's no light. And by that I mean no more new insightful book on how to overcome temptation. You've read it all and it doesn't work. No more brilliant single sermon that's going to take you to the promised land of holiness. That's just part of the cycle, right? So what do you do then? These are the same two options. Option one is to trust him in the dark. I say, no. No, the servant of the Lord has come. He has the power to sustain me until he breaks the power of that sin in my life. And he will do both. So I'll never give up. Option two, I'm going to make my own way. The consequence of that is torment. So let me finish with these words. There is a way of the servant to break the power of sin in our life. Every other way leads to torment. It's a watershed. 
Our response to Jesus has always been a watershed. Judah's response to the promise of the servant of the Lord was a watershed in 800 BC. Israel's response to Jesus in 30 AD was a watershed. Your response and mine to Jesus today is a watershed. It's the way of the servant on our own ways and our own ways lead to torment. Let me finish with a beautiful quotation uh, that John White has in his book, Daring to Dawn, The Battle with Lust, with John, John White. It applies to a- any dimension of this, uh, of this battle with sin. He says, humility does not rest upon bafflement and discouragement and self-disgust at our shabby lives or a browbeaten, dog-slinking attitude. It rests upon the disclosure of the consummate wonder of God. Eh? Untamable, incomparable. That's the, that's the God. That's humility. It's, it's the disclosure of the consummate wonder of God and the servant of the Lord. What a magnificent passage in Isaiah. So refuse to let your failures cause you self-disgust. By all means groan, but take your shame to the throne of grace where his blood will wash it away. Breathe a silent prayer of forgiveness and begin again just where you are. Offer this broken worship to him saying, this is what I am, except thou aid me. Thank him too for the day when you will be master of your sins. Though it tarry, it will come as you let God be master in other areas of your life. Learn to laugh at your chains in faith. That's all. If we will not stand firm at all, if not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all, even when it comes to sinfulness in our life. Yesterday evening, just before coming to the service, I was uh, praying through a prayer letter from Claire Bradley, and she just referred to a, a quotation from a man named George Buttrick on prayer. And one sentence just grabbed my attention. He said, Other men's words die as soon as they stop speaking like an echo dies. Jesus speaks the same words and they become words of power. So my benediction today are six words of Jesus. Please listen to them. May they never die. May they enter your life with power. First of all, he said to him, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you respond and come, then hear these words. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Listen to his words to a village prostitute. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to question among themselves, saying, Who is he? Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To a woman caught in adultery, he says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To a greedy tax collector hated by his own people and used by Rome who had forgotten everything else except the sound of money. And when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully and Jesus said to him today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. And then a word for a daughter of Abraham who was bound for 18 years. I know this is about healing, but this is, this is the word that landed the most on my heart. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. 
And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And Jesus said, hear this, hear this. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Today you are loosed from that bond. Go in Jesus' name.